Welcome to the Briona Society Podcast, Episode 12. I'm your host, Jenny Feldman. On today's episode, Lonnie Chen, Republican nominee for California Controller in 2022. You may not think you care about the job of controller, but with California facing a $68 billion deficit, I sure wish we had Lonnie watching every penny, not the Democrat who ultimately won the race. After listening to Lonnie today, I'm sure you'll agree. Lonnie, thank you for joining us today on the Briona Society Podcast. Our audience probably knows who you are, but I'd like to introduce you. Lonnie Chen is a champion of good governance, public policy expert, and a fiscal watchdog who was the Republican nominee for California State Controller in 2022. He won more votes than any other Republican in the country in the general election that year and outperformed the rest of the statewide ticket by almost half a million votes. Lonnie has advised numerous high-profile Republican candidates and served as a presidential appointee in both Republican and Democratic administrations. He's currently the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. Hi, Lonnie. How are you today? Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Jenny. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, why you got into politics, and specifically why fiscal policy? It's not an area that a lot of people uh, necessarily get all that excited about, but I think that fiscal policy, I think economic policy, these are issues that frequently have an impact on lots of other issues. And if you think about what it takes to govern a city or a state or any other entity the right way, uh, budgets and the fiscal health of that organization usually are pretty important, are pretty key to that. So for me, at least, these issues have always been of interest to me in terms of how I got into politics or how I got interested in it. For as long as I can remember, really, an interest in our system of democracy and in elections and in politics. My first sort of memory in politics was when I was nine or 10 years old watching the presidential debate between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis. Seems like a lifetime ago now. But Oh, yeah. I remember it. I, you know, I just remember thinking to myself, like, I'd love to be involved in that process at some point. And it was very different from what my parents had been used to. You know, my, my parents are, are both immigrants from Taiwan. My dad's a physician. My mom is a chemist by training. And so the notion that their son would be involved in U.S. public policy or politics was very foreign to them. And for a while, I think was tough for them to understand. But as the years have passed, and I've continued to develop and, and grow in this career, I think that they've come to understand it. But I just say it's an interest that's developed over many years. And as I got into college and professionally, I found it to be a remarkably rewarding and enjoyable place to be. Is it true that your roommate at Harvard was current U.S. Senator Tom Cotton? Yep. We're great. He was he kept to himself a lot. And, um, you know, he was the guy who would stay in when the rest of us would go out and do things that college kids probably in retrospect shouldn't have done. But he was... Uh, He's a good guy and someone who I stay in close touch with. And I just think the world of him. I think he's a great guy. And I think he's got a lot to offer as well. So one of the questions that Californians often ask ourselves is we pay so much in taxes and yet we don't seem to be getting the results for that. And when the LA Times endorsed you for controller in 2022, they zeroed right in on that. They wrote, during the past several years of strong revenue, California pumped billions into education, healthcare, and alleviating homelessness. Yet too few students can read at grade level. Too many Medi-Cal patients can't see a doctor, and too many people sleep on the streets. Californians deserve more clarity on why the state has not produced better results with its recent windfalls. Why has there been such a disconnect between policy intentions and policy outcomes here in California? 
I really link it back to a lack of accountability. And I think that it is the case that as Californians, we want to solve difficult problems. And I think pretty much all Californians would agree that there's some role for government in that. Now, we have a probably philosophical or ideological or other different sets of opinions regarding how much government ought to be involved. But the minute you start to talk about government being involved, the next question really, in my mind, needs to be around accountability and how we can make sure that when and if government is involved, the promises that are made, the things that government says that it can do are things that it actually really does. And in California for too long, I've assessed that there really hasn't been this accountability. There's no real accountability in terms of what we might expect in any organization, which is an accounting for where money actually goes and how efficient or effective it is. But there's no political accountability because we live essentially in a one-party state where there really isn't a consistent effort to provide a political check against those who end up uh, having the privilege and the honor of governing. So I think it's a combination of both of those things. And when I ran for controller, I was oftentimes amazed at the degree to which our citizenry just doesn't realize how little transparency, how little accountability they have for all of the tax dollars that we turn over as Californians. And then no way to assess the impact or the benefit of those dollars beyond just people saying, well, we spent the money. It's never been clear to me we have a great way of determining whether that money was spent in the right way or was it spent smartly. And that, to me, was a great frustration and one of the major motivating reasons for my run for state controller. So in 2022, when you ran for controller, the state was in a surplus, but the picture today is very different. And we've just learned that the state is facing a $68 billion budget deficit because of plunging revenues, including a steep drop in personal income tax collections. We, I guess we went down 25% in personal income tax collections. And I understand in the auditor's report that I read that the decline only became apparent this fall because income tax filings had been delayed due to, we gave extensions because of the storms. But wasn't this still foreseeable? I mean, didn't we know in the summer of 2022 that downtown San Francisco was empty and that the number of IPOs was down 80%? Like, was it that surprising? No, I don't think it was. This is the most predictable deficit that we've had in, in recent history for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know that the way California's tax system is designed, the way our system of tax collection is designed, it's primed for boom and bust cycles. And when the stock market's doing well, when we see a lot of realization of capital, you also see with that a lot of tax revenue. And in times when the economy is more challenging, as there have been periods over the last few years, it certainly has been, you end up with significantly less in revenue collection. And as a result, you have to budget for you know, massive swings in revenue. And you add to that the uncertainty around whether people are going to stay in California. We've had significant yep, decline lost 300, residents, in, right? uh, yep. in our population. Yeah. And so you combine all these things together and you end up with this with this problem of revenue. And again, it's knowable because we understand the factors involved and the system is not really geared toward providing a level of certainty from year to year on these issues. So we do need to look hard at the tax system and, and how we account for and collect revenue in the state. That's one thing. And then on the spending side of the ledger, as I've said before, the lack of accountability is a big problem because you keep spending and you spend without real regard for what that spending is getting you. And I think that that creates a challenge in and of itself as well. In terms of the planning and the budgeting, I went back to Newsom's press release from June 2022 when we were in the surplus. And 
let's just say it hasn't aged well. I mean, it almost sounds like one of those Oprah giveaway episodes where everyone gets a car. It was like, here's a quote. It's hard out there and we know it. So we're giving you $9.5 billion back. Millions of Californians, 23 million to be exact, will benefit from up to $1,050 as soon as October. So there's an argument, I suppose, that that was the people's money to begin with. But once it had been collected, don't you think the state had a responsibility to manage it properly and plan for the next cycle? Yeah. And we actually have mechanisms in state law in the form of a rainy day fund, for example, that allow us to set aside money. And some was set aside, but not nearly enough. I would say that the way that Governor Newsom spent money during our time of surplus was a reflection of the way that I think he and many in Sacramento view the world, which is, well, we've got this money. We need to figure out ways to spend it right now. And it wasn't just about giving people money. I mean, I think giving taxpayers back more of what they have put in, it, you know, makes sense. But it, it was more than that. It was these one-time sugar-high spending programs where he figured out, well, this constituency I'm going to help, and that constituency I'm going to help. And part of it is just the natural kind of view that I think a lot of very progressive politicians have, and that perspective was not the right one when we were in a time of relative plenty. The other issue is that. People didn't realize that a lot of that surplus we experienced a couple of years ago was driven by a massive influx in federal money. Right. There was the COVID money, right? Yeah, it was basically money from the post-COVID stimulus legislation that was passed at the federal level. And so when so much of your surplus is accounted for by, as I said earlier, the boom and bust cycle, but secondly, these sort of one-time federal payments it does really set you up for a big problem because those things are not lasting forever. And when you go back to some form of status quo, as I think the current situation probably is more reflective of, you end up with a massive fiscal hole and one that is going to be very, very difficult to fill in any way that doesn't impact people because, first of all, you've gotten a bunch of people used to getting these sources of funding. But second of all, you create a really bad precedent for the future. And I think those are the kinds of things that the governor and others in Sacramento are struggling with right now. One of his promises had been universal health care, regardless of immigration status. I don't know how far we are along in that promise, but that just seems like a, an example of setting an expectation and setting up a system that could cause a lot of problems down the road if it's not properly accounted for. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the, we can talk for a whole hour about I know healthcare the is like its own, and I know you're a healthcare yeah. expert as well. But yeah, about the challenges created by that. I mean, let's just say that it was an ill-informed idea from day one—the idea that you're going to completely upend a healthcare system that I get is not working for everybody and, and needs improvements. Absolutely does. But the notion you're going to upend all of that and replace it with a government-run system, and then, by the way, try to make the economics work. And in no place in the U.S. have the economics ever worked on single-payer healthcare. Vermont tried this. Some other states have dabbled in it. And it just won't work. Yet it continues to be one of those ideas because of how popular it is with progressives that continues to come back into the dialogue. And it's like the bad idea that won't die. And it continues to be something that folks talk about. But if you want to lower the quality of healthcare, if you want to actually restrict and not expand access, the quickest way to do it is by going to a single payer system. And there's been lots of academic research on this, a lot of evidence, a lot of data to support that point of view. And again, not to justify the current system as it exists, I think there are things that need to be fixed. But the idea that you can go to a single payer system and that that will be the answer to your problems, I think is sheer folly. 
So, you know, similarly to what's going on at the state level here in San Francisco, we are also looking at a deficit. Ours is 800 million. We have an annual budget of 14 billion in San Francisco. And just, I think a good comp is the city and county of Denver. They have about the same population, but their budget is 4 billion. One, I think one thing that we have going on here is that we have 1.7 billion of our budget going to contracts with nonprofits. And for those, there are no uniform performance guidelines. So I don't know. I mean, if you have thoughts for us here in San Francisco about what we could be asking for, I mean, for one thing, we don't have an independent auditor. We're one of the four counties in the state that doesn't. Our city auditor is within the office of controller who's appointed by the mayor. So that's part of it. But what would be your prescription for us? What could we be doing better here? I mean, I think you've alluded to some of it. First of all, I think it's crucially important to have an independent control mechanism. So there has to be an independent official, whether an inspector general or an auditor or or an independent non-appointed controller who has the responsibility for assessing where this money is going and what the impact of it is. But, you know, it gets back to the point I was making earlier, Jenny, about political competition. And unless there's a little bit more political competition within the city and county of San Francisco, it's going to be difficult to achieve the kinds of results that ultimately will serve the citizens of San Francisco best. I think there is this challenge. I get it. Like, you're probably not going to elect a Republican in San Francisco. Yet. But you have to have... Yeah, now that's true. I mean, people can continue to work at providing that level of political competition. But even within the ideological spectrum, the idea that you're choosing between a progressive and a very progressive creates the kind of challenges that have resulted in the city that really is one of America's great cities turning into, uh, in, in many cases, kind of a nightmare for residents and for visitors and for all the people who would rely on and want that city to be great again. It's hard to see how it gets there with the lack of political competition and the level of ineptitude and, frankly, lack of transparency into what's happening in City Hall. I mean, that's one of our central arguments is that you don't even have to be a Republican to agree with the idea that we'd be better off if we had some Republicans or at least people advocating for more conservative ideas. So there would be a competition of ideas and there would be a counterpoint to a lot of the excess that we see, especially at the board of supervisors level. It's a difficult selling point, but that's what we're trying to do here is to rebuild the party. Well, it's a good fight. Yeah. It's a good fight. So I wanted to also ask what you think about, I was thinking about, you could have on the point of political party affiliation, you could have probably marketed yourself as a a moderate Democrat, and you would have had a much easier road of things, uh, especially given your background and pedigree. But you decided to stick with the Republican Party. What do you, you know, what guided that decision? I got a lot of advice about this. I think what it ultimately came down to is two things. One, I am a Republican. I've been a Republican my whole life. And while that has stood for various things and different things at different points, I didn't think it was particularly honest for me to somehow discover one morning waking up that I'm actually a Democrat. Now, I I get it, the coalition shift and the definition shift over time. But given my deep background in helping various Republican policymakers and politicians over the years, it is what I am. And as I look at where the major parties stand on issues, on many issues, I am still very much of the view that the Republican Party has the right approach, whether it's on the role of government, on how to make healthcare more affordable, on how to improve our economy, on how to protect our country, on how to secure our border. Those are all issues where I generally am more aligned with Republicans. I would say the second reason, Jenny, and and this one goes to this issue of what the party has become. I have felt in a lot of ways the Republican Party has left me and has left a lot of people maybe who are like me, who are fiscal conservatives, 
who believe in that as the principal reason why we affiliate with this party and this movement, that the only way to hold the party accountable and to bring the party back to what it probably ought to be is to fight from within and to demonstrate from within what what a candidacy looks like that is based on principles that are more aligned with the Republican Party and the conservative movement I grew up in. And not to say I agree with everything that the party and the movement has stood for over the years, but I do think that the ideas of fiscal responsibility, individual accountability, and the value of transparency and the importance of having a set of principles that promote these things and policies that promote them as well, I think that fight for me is one that's very difficult to carry out if you're going to leave the party and say you're not a Republican anymore. Well, then you don't have standing, really, to say what is and isn't. I mean, and I think we grew up in the same era, too. And I always, whenever somebody says, well, what about a third party? Isn't there a third way? I'm like, Ross Perot. Like, I lived through this. <laughs> it's You've really got one of two teams to pick, and it, you're not going to necessarily agree with every single thing on a party platform or every single candidate that's put forward, but you kind of have to work within that system. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I, th- I think that's right. I think as much as we all want to believe that there can be something that punches through in this time. And I do think that if there is any time for some kind of independent or, or third party movement to gain traction, I, I do think this is probably the era and the time for it. That having been said, in most cases, the choice is pretty binary and you do have to decide where you align more closely. So are you advising any of the current presidential candidates? I'm not. I haven't, at least in a formal way, I'm not. I do occasionally offer thoughts if people ask or have given a few uh, policy considerations to a few of the candidates. But I've mostly stayed out of this cycle in part because I just don't, I haven't felt that there is going to be a really significant competition within the Republican Party. Now, I, I could very well be wrong, and I hope I am proven wrong because I think that competition makes the party better, produces a better nominee. And so, uh, but I've been, you know, mostly on the sidelines of this one, observing and commenting. And I know you're focused on your academic positions and you also have professional obligations as well. But have you given any thought to what your next step might be in terms of running again? Well, it was a great experience running for office. And you learn so much about the state. You learn a lot about yourself. And for me, in reflecting on it, I mean, the more I've reflected on it, the more I really feel like it was an experience where I had tremendous opportunity to learn. And I did enjoy a lot. That having been said, I'm not eager to get into another campaign where you kind of start off 30 points behind, if that makes sense. I mean, if you look at a state like California, Republicans are at such a disadvantage when it comes to registration that you do kind of start off in a hole. And you have to figure out the best way to make something of that. And I think we did with my campaign. We showed that you can be a little more competitive. But I really would want another run for office to be in a situation where I felt like we had a reasonably good chance at success. It doesn't have to be a slam dunk. It doesn't have to be even one where I'm favored. But I am going to think intentionally about that piece of it. But more importantly, what do I actually want to do? What do I find enjoyable? And where am I energized? And I was energized by the idea of being controller of the state of California, being able to address some of these big fiscal challenges. That really did energize me. And so, oh man, we you wish know, you were there we'll put now. that all into the blender and take a look, to, you know, take a look at how the next couple of years, years turn out and, and make a decision based on that. But I'm certainly open to running again. And I think um, I still got more to give and hope to be able to do so. Oh, well, you certainly have more to give. Lonnie, I know you had to wrap up before the top of the hour, so I will let you go. But thank you so much again for agreeing to speak with us here at the Briona Society. We really appreciate it. We're learning a lot from you. We're listening to you. And I hope that more San Franciscans will continue to do so as well. Thank you so much. Well, great to be with you. And thanks for all that you're doing in San Francisco. Thanks, Lonnie. 